Craig Leeson. Welcome to Breakfast with Bob Z. Thanks for having me. In my mind, you are a visionary, a pioneer, an environmentalist, a change maker, and a fantastic filmmaker, deeply insightful, raising awareness. But also, you've been involved in many other things. You're um, a correspondent with Al Jazeera News. Um, you're the founder of iShot Hong Kong Film Festival. Um, you're the chairman of uh, Leeson Media International and Ocean Vista Films. Mm -hmm. um, you wear many hats. Mm. And um, you're also, most important to me, an example of someone I can look up to here in Hong Kong. Thank you. Well, that's, <laughs> um, I, as you say, I wear many hats because I find that um, uh, as a human you evolve into different areas and you find that there are different um, projects that you want to work on, but ultimately it all comes back to, uh, to realizing your own potential. And for me, it was filmmaking as a voice, as, as, a, as a vehicle for telling stories um, about what I was seeing around the world, the interesting people I meet, um, their ideas. So it's, a, it, it's kind of like, for me, I guess, a, a visual internet of connectivity. Um, and I think film's a very powerful medium. And uh, I've seen the power that films have and the, the way that they can change people. So um, that's become the medium. I started as a, as a newspaper journalist, but that's the medium that I was drawn to. And, and that now I've made my, my career out of. It's an honor having you. It's great to be here and to uh, and see your, your, well, it's new for me because I haven't been to this shop, but uh, yeah. what a great location. It's a charming little cafe tucked mm. away in a leafy neighborhood without cars. I, you can't hear a car, or you can hear a birds. Birds and, and the, the rain. rain. Yeah, rain it's tapping it's away beautiful. now. And, uh, it, it's a pleasure. And, why can't we have more pedestrianized streets in Hong Kong? Why can't we have streets that are for the arts, for the people, for the community, for the children, for the culture, you know? Exactly. Why has our city lagged behind for so long? And, um, we have a city that's built for cars, not for people. And there are many cities around the world like this. Um, and the, the, I think the pity with Hong Kong is that it is actually a people city. And it's, it's so small and condensed that it takes forever to get anywhere in a car. If we took the cars out of the equation and built it so that people can get around on electric scooters or by foot, you would actually make people's time a lot shorter to travel around the city than what it currently is. And healthier. And healthier. And happier. Yeah, much happier. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's one of the problems now is that it's getting too polluted and people are leaving. Um, that's something that I'm thinking about myself is where do I go from here because the air pollution worries me uh, a great deal and I don't want to live in an atmosphere that doesn't sustain my, my body um, to the, the, the health level that I'd like it to and so where, where else do you go and I don't want to leave Hong Kong I've got friends and my business is there here. another planet you have somewhere a secret planet we can all move to well that's the, that's the message we, we try it? and send yeah. you know with the work we're doing is that there is an alternative yet there is no other planet we, we all live on this island and we live here together and we have to make it work and I wish people would wake up to that people are moving around their day-to-day -day lifestyles and, and living as if we had 
three or four planets in reserve, you know. So if we mess this one up, ah, no worries, boys. We'll just, you know, get another one. But that's right. I saw some uh, read some research recently where they said, uh, where the the summary of the research was that we're currently consuming so many resources. It's as though we have six planets to live on, and that's because of the population that we have and the resources, the finite resources that are left. We're consuming as though we have another six planets to draw those resources yeah. from. Yeah. And of course we don't, and we're not even at a stage yet where we're sustainably uh, growing crops or sustainably managing uh, species that we require to continue uh, living as we do in a way that we can keep populating the earth. And as tough as it is, I, I had this conversation while I was in Vietnam last weekend with some friends. As tough as it is, we need to start looking at, well, where is this resource problem coming from? If you take it all the way back, it's coming from overpopulation. So how do we manage overpopulation? And that's a very tough question for governments um, to deal with because you're getting to the emotion of, of what we're all about as a species, and that's mm. procreating mm. And, and, and pushing our genetic code. And so when you start to manage that, we're starting to, you know, to really uh, fight against the reason we're here. But what else do we do? And if you look at some of the greatest thinkers uh, of our time, like Sir David Attenborough, who's one of my heroes, um, they all look and, and speak about population control as being one way of managing the resources we have left. I wonder, though, if you've thought about a deeper route to our crisis. Is it, it's a crisis. Mm. And beyond population, yes, population is a mega challenge. Um, the way we conduct our economy is a challenge. Mm. All our institutions, whether it's education or health or defense or law, mm. they're all based on an assumption that we live in a materialism universe, mm. that the building block of the universe is material, mm. a quark, an atom, a sub-atom. Mm -hmm. But in the last hundred years or so, and the ancients knew this, our scientists are telling us, no, no there is something beyond materialism, beyond matter. And it's not quite energy and it's not quite matter, it's something else that's underpinning the entire universe. Mm. And we're starting to see this as consciousness. So I wonder if the root cause of this crisis is an assumption that we live in a material universe with infinite material un uh, resources and hence nothing really matters because everything is material at the end of the day. You, me, there is no... Um, higher purpose, there is no consciousness. Now you're going deep. We okay. have to go deep because it's a, it's a crisis that's within the human psyche. It's an integral part of humanity. Mm. Because for the last 500 years or so, we've been living in a Cartesian model where we based everything on physics, on uh, physical reality. Right. Because we feel that we need to have things explained to us. There has to be logic Correct. to everything that happens. And that's served its purpose beautifully, and mm. it's given us everything we have. Thank God, mm -hmm. wonderful. But now it's starting to harm us, whether it's through plastic in the oceans, 
whether it's through deforestation, whether it's contamination of the water tables, contamination of the soil, pollution of the air. Mm. So all of this, you can trace it back to this worldview. But in the last hundred years or so, many of us have been shifting from a materialism consciousness to a holistic consciousness, to a holistic worldview where everything is interconnected where we are all one ultimately, all made out of the same suchness, the same energy, the same... Yeah. Or even uh, what I've been looking into lately and, and talking about is even that when you say we're all one, we, we are actually, we're not all the sums or some parts of one, we are actually one organism that requires the moving parts for it to exist in the one consciousness, yeah. such as our bodies. We think because we think in one direction that we are one being, but we're not. We're, we're millions and millions of different organisms all working together to make this planet spin in a way that it's able to take care of all the organisms who rely on it for its existence. So if you take that and, and you blow that up into uh, a worldview or a universe view, um, you start to wonder how big or small is the universe? Um, is it a, a, a world or an organism within itself, within a much larger organism. Mother Earth. We've always seen Absolutely. a planet as a dead planet made out of molten and rock and what have you. We but know that's not the case. If you shift consciousness and you look at the world holistically, mm. then you realize that Mother Earth is a living organism, like you and me and all of creation. Mm. Uh, this uh, is the change self. maker. Yeah. So I don't think it's just about population, mm. because Mother Earth in her abundance can support 20 billion people if we live sustainably. That's if right. If we live within our limits, mm. what they call the carrying capacity, like all of nature does. So we're the only species that has broken that universal law, and we're living outside of our means, beyond our carrying capacity, consuming, like you said, as if we have six planets. Mm. But so it's not. The overpopulation is a symptom, it's not the cause. I believe the cause is deep, deep, deeply rooted in an assumption. So how do we go beyond that when you've got a, um, an organism that believes it has a very, understands it has a finite life, thinks though from the moment it's born it's immortal because we act as though we're immortal. Um, we all so think true. we're going to live forever. forever. Yeah. Um, because that's that's our understanding of the world as we live it day by day, but of course we don't. No. So how do you go beyond that trying to fix a problem that's within your own space and sphere, which dealing with overpopulation is? I mean, that if you deal with that, you can see a beginning and an end. Yeah. Um, shifting the consciousness towards um, believing in a more holistic approach takes a lot of work. And it, it has to be done where you're able to get everybody or the, the entire organism to well, deal with it. You're talking about a paradigm shift or exactly. a transformation. There's mm. been about four or five throughout the known history of humanity. No more. And we are un undergoing the largest one now because we've never been so interconnected globally, interlinked through technology and what have you. Previously, uh, ages of enlightenment have been isolated to the ancient Greeks or ancient China or the Sumerians perhaps, or the Egyptians. There's never been a global understanding, a global movement, a global awakening, what Willis Harmon calls the global mind change. Mm -hmm. This is a first for humanity. Mm. But this is 
speeding change up, there's an exponential growth, and you've probably seen it what, since you launched um, Plastic Ocean. Yes. Um, the reception, people are ready for this information. Yes. So we are going through a transformation and we are going through a shift in consciousness and these take hundreds and hundreds of years. But the beauty about this one now is it's sped up. Right. It's, it's, it's growing exponentially very, very quickly, much quicker than it's ever done before. And that's thanks to the crisis, the environmental crisis, but also thanks to technology that we are all aware of what's going on we can change quickly. So we've used technology or are using technology such as the internet as an interconnected way of being in touch and understanding more a change like you're talking about, yes. which when you think about it is quite ironic Isn't given it? that we all have that capacity within ourselves anyway to do it. Animals have the ability to, to communicate without technology um, but it's taken us this development <laughs> um, over you know hundreds of thousands of years yes. to get to a point where we can actually connect with each other yes. via external means and to unwittingly start destroying ourselves yes. by polluting the oceans and the atmosphere and, and, mm. and the planet so now we, we realize that we can't continue with business as usual something has to shift there has to be some change, fundamental change. But in any dying pangs of an old world view, there's a fight mm -hmm. with claw and tooth. Mm. Because the old world view that's had a grip on the consciousness of humanity for at least 500, 600 years will not let go without a fight. So the established institutions still believe that their way is right and that we live in a materialism universe and there's enough resources for everyone and economy trumps everything else. So they will fight till the very end. Not because they're evil or because they're bad people. It's just because they are misguided. That's their belief. And their belief is based on assumptions, not scientific fact. Yeah. So I we have to have sympathy for this old world view that's crumbling around us. Absolutely. And I think, I think the one lesson of, of many of the lessons that resonates with what you're saying is that the problem we have when we think suddenly we're right because we understand the consciousness or we're becoming like ourselves is that we suddenly rail against those who haven't reached that stage yet and I think that's the wrong way to go okay. one um, one thing I've learned in terms of, of making the film and making people aware of the problem of plastics because I wasn't aware when we started this film I had no idea it came from a question from a producer who asked me, and as soon as I started looking at it, bang, it was there in front of me. And we've had that same reaction from large companies that that produce the plastic bottles for, for the big brand soda companies who had no idea till they saw the film. So if you're, as Dr. Sylvia Earle says in the film, if you don't know, you can't care. If you do know, then you can start doing something about it. So when you talk about established institutions and people with established views, the old guard, um, they've carried this so-called knowledge that's been passed down to them about, about survival and how as a family um, or a company, they need to continue to survive because they haven't been shown another way of doing it. And they hang on to that because within their minds, 
they believe that if they don't, they will become obsolete um, and, and endangered species themselves um, or not profitable. So what I found is that you need to lead by example. And if you can lead by example and find other ways of doing things, we're talking about water and you're explaining to me um, the powers and properties of water. I, I think humans are like water in that we will find the path of least resistance. Mm. And until we show another path or carve out another path for the majority of people to go, um, we won't go that way because most people like to be led and like to be helped on their, their journey. Mm. There, there, there's, there's fear in being a change maker or going out and forging your own path. Mm. Um, and that's, a, that's natural. Um, so I think if we're able to come up with ideas, we're able to show people alternatives and prove that they work, that's when we start to make change. And as you say, in this particular period, we've got more entrepreneurs now than we've ever had. We've got technology that's enabling us to prove our point in, in many different ways. And the kids of today are so smart when it comes to the problems that they are forced to deal with, such as you know, pollution, whether it be air pollution or plastic pollution, um, technological problems, uh, fossil fuels. Yes. They understand these things aren't good for them and they know we've left them this legacy that they have to deal with. Yes. So when I give talks to kids about the, the film and the, and the plastic pollution, it's the one thing that gives me optimism because I can see it and hear it from them, that they understand and they're willing and they know that they have to do something for their kids. And that's one of the messages I put in the film is that our parents and their parents created the problem. Our generation has recognized it and is trying to work out how to deal with it so that our kids can actually clean up the mess and, and start implementing uh, ways and programs and projects to deal with it so that their children have a better future. We have the technology. Yeah, we do. We certainly have the money. Yeah. Um, we have the resources. We have what it takes. We're intelligent homo sapiens, right? What's been lacking has been the wisdom. Yes. Because we have the information. God knows we're drowning in information. Mm. And information has to become knowledge. And knowledge has to be experienced before it becomes wisdom. Yes. So I think this is what's happening now. And entrepreneurs and change makers like yourself uh, are leading the way. And um, this brings me to your recent movie, um, Plastic Ocean, oh, Ocean Plastic. And Plastic Ocean. Plastic Ocean, yeah. um, which I just watched when a couple of weeks ago mm -hmm. when you did the premiere here in Hong yes. Kong. And uh, I'd seen snippets of it before, but amazing. Very timely message that is being received by open ears not blocked ears, yes. open hearts, yes. not blocked hearts, open minds, not blo blocked minds. And this is the powerful moment to be putting out such a message. And um, I'm, I'm very impressed, so um, thank you. respect, thank respect you. for what you've done here. The, the, the timing of when the film came out was very serendipitous. It was almost out of our control. I, the film was supposed to have come out uh, about three years ago. And um, due to um, problems with funding and, and, and new uh, sequences that we knew we needed to film to put into uh, the film to complete the story, 
it's taken a lot longer. And I remember back during the production stage when we were filming sequences all around the world, we filmed in 20 different locations over four years, we, the, the, the biggest hurdle we had was that nobody understood the issue. There was very little science around that we could draw on. So we had to take our own scientists. So we cherry-picked the best scientists in the fields and took them with us and conducted our own research. Um, you know, in places like sub-Antarctic waters, um, off the, the south coast of Sri Lanka, in, in the South Pacific, you know, places that we thought were pristine. And we then used that research and analysed it to come up with our own conclusions. And then we had that peer-reviewed. So the science in the film was very important to us because we wanted people to understand that we, this wasn't anecdotal. This wasn't one person's view or, or two people, myself or Tanya, the other adventurer in the film. Um, this was what we're able to actually prove is taking place in the oceans and within human health um, at that particular time. And we wanted to get that out as quickly as we could because we realised that this was worse than we could ever yeah. imagine. If we had have gone, at, if, if our timetable had have worked uh, three years ago, I don't think the film would have received the uh, attention that it is getting today because of what you said. Mm. People weren't open to it then. What we found was as we got closer and closer through post-production to getting the film ready for distribution, more information, because we, we were putting we were putting little bits of information out and letting people know and the scientific community were aware of what we were doing. And so this was, this was getting out and we were drawing in other institutions um, and NGOs that were working on the same issue. Information was becoming it, knowledge. Information was becoming knowledge, knowledge was spreading, people were getting involved. So that when we did release the film, there was a little bit of knowledge out there that was enough to draw people into want to see the film to understand more. So when they saw that we weren't just an issues-based film, I mean the, the film was, I directed it so that it was, a, it was this great expedition and adventure. So even if you're not into the issue, you could go along and enjoy seeing blue whales filmed underwater for the first time. You know, lay an albatross on Midway Island um, and, and, and the life cycle of the chicks. Uh, all of these fantastic um, animal sequences and human sequences and cultural sequences that we filmed, I think, uh, made the film interesting on its own. But what we did was we connected the dots with our lifestyle and how, over the last 60 years, that's put us in this precarious position and how that's not only affecting marine life, but then it's coming back through the food chain and it's harming us through... Uh, the human health aspect and that of could our be relationship. the turning point, right? Once humans realise that it harms them, absolutely. Change. As sad as that is, because we don't really care about other species as much as we care about ourselves yes. and our own family. So, when we connected those dots, and then we we're able to explain why it, it's hurting us, that's I think that's had a profound impact on on people. Yes. A few years back, I saw plastic seas. Perhaps. Mm. The timing of that one wasn't as serendipitous as the timing of Plastic Ocean. Yes. But Plastic Seas came out about three years ago. Yep, that's right. And that was very powerful. That, mm. that shocked me to the core. And then a few years later, we had uh, Plastic Age mm -hmm. with Will Farrell's involved yes. with that. And in, in, in that, they suggest solutions. I don't know mm. if you've seen it. Yes. 
about making this bionic thread from plastic that's really durable. So they're making a brand of funky clothing called it's Raw mm. by the company behind it called GeForce. Mm. And they tap into a lot of um, solutions. Yes. This crisis can be turned into a solution. It yes. A resource. Plastic is a resource, yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely. And there's this young Dutch chap, young Dutch kid. Boy in slack. Yes, mm. what he's come up with, his, his, mm. his, his way of using the currents to collect yes. tons and tons of plastic. And I'm sure you're a lot familiar than I am, but yeah. there's a lot of innovation entrepreneurs out there who are turning Absolutely. this into an advantage. Yeah, well, the, one of the, and this is why the film took a bit longer, because when we finished filming all of the problems, we realized that it was depressing. I mean, I, I, I was so pessimistic in terms of the future of humanity. I mean, I'd, I'd looked at a global scale then about where do we go from here um, because I couldn't see any future. We've messed up the oceans. There's so much plastic in the oceans now that we can't ever take it all back. It's in, in such small pieces and it's so entrenched into our food chain that there's no way we can clean it all up. So how do we fix that? Well, the answer is to is to take it from, not, not look at the solutions of cleaning that up, but it is initially is to take it all the way back and to stop putting it in the oceans in the first place. So we've got to stop yes. our addiction to single-use plastic. Yes. And that's what it is, and that's what's caused the problem. I'm not anti-plastic. I mean, my phone, my computers, our cameras, they're all made of these, this great material. We need it. We need it, um, but we don't need single-use plastic. And you know, this year alone, we're going to make 300 million tons of plastic, and half of that is single-use plastic. It's plastic we'll use once. It has an average shelf life of 12 minutes, and we throw it away. Now, where is the way? Well, we think that it goes away forever, but it doesn't. The message is it goes away from our body, but it becomes someone else's problem. But eventually, over time, it'll work its way through the river systems, into the oceans, will break up, it will turn into what fish and marine life believe is food. They'll consume it, it'll bioaccumulate, it'll come back up the food chain, and who's at the top of the food chain? Us. So that plastic straw you used just once and then threw away, it's possible you consume that in 30 years' time. Um, so it doesn't go away, it comes back to you. I mean, how, what, a, what a marketing campaign that we were sold. The most durable product we've ever made as humans is disposable. How could we yes. ever have believed that? Yes. It's, it's an incredible, um, study in how gullible we can yes. be in terms of uh, wanting to believe something because it makes our life easier. Well, we believed the earth was flat once upon a time. That's right. Therefore, the earth was flat. Yes. And anyone who said otherwise was locked up, mm. was deemed a loony, and uh, even worse. Yes. So, you know, some of the beacons, the visionaries who've been shouting out now for decades saying, you know, we only have one world, we only have one planet, we are all one. You know? mm. This business as usual, this economic route we've taken is non-sustainable. My sympathy, my compassion goes out to these people, mm. visionaries, artists, mm. who've been shouting from the rooftops. Mm. The writing's been on the wall for so long. I know. But it's taken us till now mm. that it's starting to harm us, mm. unwittingly, inadvertently. Yes. We are not only harming other species. Some people say, well, I don't care too much about the chickens and the cows and the whales. Mm. But if it's harming you and your kids, mm. basta, stop. Yeah, well, look, 
that's uh, that's an interesting point. And as I said, I think you know, when Tanya Streeter, the freediver in the film, we take her to a, a chemical analysis laboratory, and she's just given birth to her second child. Yeah, that's a touching moment. And she realizes that everything she touches that's plastic, even just by touching it, it's leaching chemicals into her, and that could have affected her baby. And she breaks down. She starts crying, and. We, we actually cut that uh, to minimize the, the distraught uh, nature of, of, of the moment for her because we didn't want people to think we were, were getting too over emotional with it. But um, Tanya really felt deeply that the problems that she was creating for her children were her fault and that affected her. And we, so we left a little bit of that in the film mm. because we wanted people to understand that when you think about this deeply, there is an emotional connection that um, we need to be aware of in terms of the legacy we leave. But interestingly, in the film, the one, the one sequence that people come back to me and keep saying really shocked them, which surprised me because of what we're talking about, how we care more about us and ourselves and our immediate family than we do other species. But the one sequence people keep saying to me that shocked them is the sequence where we open that shearwater bird we're doing the necropsy on it, and Jennifer Lavers, our seabird scientist, pulls out handfuls of plastic and puts it on the bench. And that shocks people because it's not just that that bird died from over-ingesting plastic. People feel personally responsible for that bird's death, as I do. I didn't know plastic was a problem until I became aware that it was a problem. So up until that point, I'd been using plastic as though it was disposable. And my life up to that point had created a problem where that plastic's still out there in the ocean somewhere, and it's affecting an, a, a, an animal somehow. So it's very possible that some yeah. of the plastics in that fish came from my lifestyle. Yeah. And I think by the, that I point... I thought I recognised your initials on one of yes, those Yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so when we finally show that sequence in the film, the realisation is there by that time that we're all responsible and in some way, shape or form for what's happening. So people connect that dot at that moment in that film. So I think um, uh, we find through the film in the way that we crafted it and we crafted the script and um, our fantastic editor, Mindy, the way that, that she built a lot of the story visually uh, works because the places we were trying to make the highlights, we we're trying to resonate with people, we we're trying to get an emotive point out. We're seeing that as we sit in the cinemas and sit with other people and we hear the audible gasps and we hear the, the, the talk and we see the smiles and we see the tears. And we, we have people coming up to us afterwards saying, you know, I cried during that film and I want to do something. What can I do? Tell me. What can I do? So it was important for us that the last act of the film concentrated on solutions mm. and we didn't want people leaving the cinema feeling like they'd been shot in the head and there was nothing they could do and no hope for their children. We wanted them to go out and start being the change makers Absolutely. That, that we were being in making the film. And as I say to people, look, I'm actually no different from you. What happened was I was made aware of the problem and I wanted to do something about it immediately. And for me, the best uh, way of doing something immediately was making a film that would create awareness. So now it's your turn. You go and do something that... Yes that draws on the resources you have and your skills to be your change maker in your sphere of influence. 
and, yeah. and that's what we're finding happens. And on that note, coming down from your screening, we were coming down in the lift after the screening of um, Plastic Ocean, and um, there was about a dozen of us in, in the lift, and we were going down, as you do in Hong Kong lifts, and everyone's kind of self-conscious, but the mood was a little bit heavy, so I said, how does everybody feel, depressed or inspired? And everyone's shuffling around mm. a bit, and I said, well, we need this depression mm. to motivate us, yeah. to inspire us. Mm. We have to be shaken. We have to be woken up. Otherwise, it's business as usual. We're going to continue with our day-to-day -day lives. And, and everyone seemed to be in agreement that, yes, you know, this infirmary just shocked us and woke us up. But now we have a chance to turn this into a solution, into action, into being change makers. That's right. And that's why Joe Ruxton, the producer of the film, uh, and Sonia Norman, um, they, they, you know, this is their baby. They, they were the initial change makers and they brought this issue to me and asked me to look at it. That's why they set up Plastic Oceans Foundation, was right. because they didn't want the film to be the end of the story. They wanted... Um, a base for the science to go. So all the science we've done is being housed in there and that's accessible to everybody. Um, we also wanted to be able to provide advice to individuals and corporations and restaurants and airlines um, who have a plastic problem. So they could come to us and we can show them solutions or point them in the right direction. So the foundation has been built to continue the work and we now, that was initially set up in the UK, we now have uh, the foundation in Hong Kong, we have one we've just set up in Canada, and uh, we have uh, the headquarters now in the US where we're dealing with a lot of corporates and uh, we're trying to provide uh, information that helps them change their business. And you're going to be very, very busy. It, it is, and, and we're overwhelmed actually. I mean, as I said, at the end of every screening, we get people coming up to us um, all from all around the world saying, What can I do? How do I do it? I've got a you know, I'm, I'm a retailer from Germany and I use plastic packaging and it makes me sick every day I go in. But we have to use it because if we don't put that little thumb drive into a plastic container this big, they, things get stolen. If we put a light bulb into a cardboard container and put it beside a same light bulb in a plastic container, 70% sales drop in the cardboard container because people want the plastic one. So how do we yeah. change that? And so we kind of come back to them with ideas and solutions. and solutions. Or we help them set up their own Plastic Oceans Foundation in their own village yes. or town or country so that they can start bringing in um, other corporates and like-minded entrepreneurs who can then build their own solution space and start uh, being their own change-making yes. device in that area. During the screening, um, you released to me some very sad news about the late Rob Stewart. Yes. And that was the first time I heard it. He'd passed away a few days before, right? Mm. Yes. And I, I wasn't aware. And I'd met Robert several times in Hong Kong with Shark Water and the foundation and mm. what he'd been doing. And then you mentioned that and I'm like, whoa. So that also was poignant mm. for the message. Yes that here's this brother, this powerful change maker, this visionary, but he died in the ocean. He died where he belonged. He died, yep. you know, doing, doing what he loved doing the most. Absolutely. Um, and that's why I dedicated that screening at the Royal Geographic Society to Rob. And 
I didn't know Rob well. I met him during uh, his screenings and his fundraising activities, and he was somebody that um, I got on with instantly because I recognised very similar characteristic traits, our love for the ocean, um, and our, our, our desire to get to try and help people understand why we need to make change. Mm. And so when Rob died the way he did, I, initially I was shocked because we lost somebody who was a very powerful orator yeah. uh, um, in terms of speaking about change. But then it changed to one of love, understanding, and the cycle of the universe where he's gone back. His energy is still around. It's transformed into other areas. He's gone back to where he came from. and. Um, he's left a legacy mm. and so we need to carry that legacy on mm. and that's going to happen to me it'll happen to you it, mm. it, it, whether it happens earlier or later is sooner or later the, we all got to go we, we're all going to go right, right? We, we, we're, we're spending a very short time here but while yes. we're here it's important we we leave a legacy and even during the filming uh, of the film the submarine sequence where you see Mike Degree um, who is a an amazing oceanographer He'd, spent his life filming all around the world um, beneath the waves and being in, in fact had become so passionate about it, he'd become a presenter and had made his own documentaries and three months after we filmed that sequence in the Mediterranean where we put him in a submarine and dived to the bottom of the Mediterranean to see the the sites that we don't think about and that's the plastic the 70% of plastic that sinks mm. um, uh, Mike died, and he oh. died in a helicopter accident in Australia, um, working on his next project with, with James Cameron, uh, in a very unfortunate accident. Oh. But, um, and whilst that was immensely sad for us, uh, once again, he's left a legacy in all of the projects he's done, and, and in our film as well. And he's the one who says in the film, which is, I think is one of the very, very important points made by some of the people we interview and talk to is we, there is so much plastic in the ocean now that we've got to, we've come to a point where we need to work out how we deal with that and the way to deal with that is to actually move back to the start and stop putting plastic into the ocean in the first place so that's where we have to start and that's mm. the point that he makes very powerfully um, so we're all we're all here at this short time and we're all here I think to make some change and we need to embrace the work that's been done by people like Rob and and, uh, uh, and and all of the change makers who have moved on, absolutely, and carry forward with their work. And that's how what can we're doing. we empower the change makers? How can we support the change makers? Because often change makers, are, you know, especially the pioneers, are out there doing their own thing, often ridiculed, yes, ignored, underfunded, underfunded, undersupported. Mm. So today it's about empowering these change makers and change makers could be young kids, they yep. could be students, they let us support them, you know, not just with funding but emotionally and, and with, with, with our hearts and our minds and let's give them credit yes. and credence. Um, yeah, I think it's, uh, as you say, we're, we're coming to the realisation as a group, as a species, that what we were told before that having the most money, money means wealth, um, um, uh, having a large bank account means that you've done well, that's a measure of success. Status. Status. We're starting to understand that that's not true. Um, being healthy and living longer and producing healthy kids 
is a sign of wealth. Now, having a, an environment that works on its own and is able to um, have a, a, an ecosystem that produces sustainability within its, within its own um, self is having wealth. So living in a big city, in a fantastic apartment with all appliances, that was what we used to aspire to. Yes. And I think kids today are aspiring to living near the ocean on a beach or in a rainforest or, or somewhere where they're closer to nature, where they feel connected to nature, yes. where they know they're part of nature. Because what we did, which I think is wrong, and I blame our education system for this, is we, we taught our kids that we weren't nature. Nature was something that happened to you when you walked out the front door. It's yeah. separate. That we are above nature and we control nature. And of course we don't. Of course. Well, you know, the world will spin on well after we're gone. And it will re-evolve and there'll be volcanoes and the magma will come up and it'll cleanse and the whole process will start again if it has to. So this boils down to a worldview and a materialism paradigm. Yes status, the wealth of your bank account, how many cars you have, how many homes you have, yep. really mattered. Because in yep. a material universe, that matters. Yes. But in a conscious universe, that is secondary. What yep. really matters is peace of mind, yes. well-being, experience, happiness, knowledge, health. Yeah. So as we shift consciousness, these values and principles have a lot more value mm. to us today than they did a while back. Yeah, and this is, this is the beauty is as you, you start to shift consciousness, as you start to awaken, mm. you start to connect the dots. Yes, and you realize that peace of mind and health and happiness, and a healthy family and a healthy environment is paramount. Is what it's all about. Peace of mind. How important is that? How hard is that to get in a Worth city? Worth a trillion dollars. Like Hong Kong. Abs Worth a trillion absolutely. Dollars. And that peace of mind. It's so important but so difficult when we're so stressed with the daily decision-making processes that we have to go through um, it, it, you know down to what am I going to wear today it, will I look good enough for the event after work's finished you know at work you know do, I've got to get that report done on time where do I find out that fi financial information is it correct all those emails all those emails I mean yeah 300 emails a day <coughs> these these are things that stress us and I think subtract from our experience and enjoyment of the environment we've been brought into. And this is a process I'm going through now. I'm, I feel this awakening and I'm only part way down the journey and I'm still looking for the right paths to go down as, as I transform into this other being um, that has a different view on what's important to me. Um, I don't have children. I'd love to have kids. When I finished making the film, I went, thank God I don't have kids. I don't want to leave them a world like this. But then as you transform more, you realize that if you've got a legacy to leave, why not actually help propagate that legacy by, um, uh, by talking to children and, and, and helping them become the change makers. So, that's what I love doing now is, is my favorite thing is to go into schools, to do a presentation and to talk to kids and, and help them in their own, on their own pathway. It's delightful. Mm. It's important. Yeah. So these things naturally come. We naturally want to practice something that gives us peace of mind, be it meditation or yoga or tai chi or qigong. 
so we naturally start to change because all change comes from within and once our mind expands with an idea or a vision it cannot shrink back again because that's the beauty about the human mind that is our nature and therein lies the hope that's why I wake up every morning optimistic mm. regardless of what's happening to our forests mm. and our groundwater mm. I'm aware of that mm. but I rather focus on the positive things that are happening and all these change makers like yourself Greg mm. we focus on people like you who are coming with solutions who are showing the way who are saying wait a minute yes I'm aware of these problems I'm aware that the ocean is full of plastic but have we considered using plastic as a resource and so on and so forth so let us focus on all the positive things that are happening because the more awareness we bring to that the more it can blossom the more it can bloom mm. let us be aware of the negativity and the destruction that's happening but let us not put our attention onto that absolutely let us divert it to the change makers who are making change I think it's very important uh, to understand the power of thinking in not good or bad, but positive and negative. I mean, because that's that's how charge electricity works, yes. a lot of things. So um, I try and change the way I look at things uh, at a personal level. So so I'm not talking in a, a bad or negative way because I believe that if you focus on something, you can manifest it in a certain way. So, for example, uh, a classic example is yeah, a, a protest. When people go to protest, they might be anti-war or um, or anti-pollution. Um, Whereas I think what we should be doing is is going. We should be pro protesting for peace. We should be pro peace. Pro peace, right? And 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 we should be um, pro environment. Pro sustainability. So, so we're thinking yes. in our heads that we're not raging against this machine. We're we're moving as you say towards a new consciousness and that's a positive thing. I think the era of blame and shame is over. We yes. don't want to be wagging our fingers at anyone. Yeah. Like mm. you, I love public speaking and I go mm. to schools a lot. Mm. And I learned many years ago not to tell anyone to become vegan. Mm. Because if you tell 10 people, okay, on Monday morning everybody go vegan, they're going to go, yeah, right. But if you tell these 10 people on Monday morning, reduce your consumption of meat, fish and dairy. Well, nine out of ten are going to say, yeah, I can reduce my consumption of nutrition there. Yeah. So it's about being proactive. And helping people have their own awakening. You can't force it on. And that was a really important uh, part of uh, scripting the film was, um, you know, the producers were saying to me, well, you know, we've got, who's the bad guy? You've got to have in, an anti-hero. You've got to have... Um, the, 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 the focus of attention on, on who's to blame. The cowboy in black, you know. Exactly. And what we realized was that we couldn't, if we said corporations are to blame, or we said people are to blame, um, or plastic manufacturers are to blame, we realized that all that's doing is shifting blame away from other people who actually were, you know, the, the, the thing is we're all to blame. We've all been seduced by this marketing concept that plastic is disposable. And rather than force people into that realization, we wanted them to wake up to that through the film. So first of all, we show plastic as being the problem. That's to blame. Plastic's causing this problem in the oceans. And then we move towards, well, who, where's that coming from? Well, plastic's producers, maybe they're to blame. 
And then we move from that, well, why are they producing plastic? Consumers want it. So maybe, maybe consumers are to blame. And then, well, why are consumers using it? Because governments allow legislation that allows it into the marketplace. So maybe governments are to blame. Great, it's not us. And so there's this line all the way through where the blame kind of shifts very subtly until you realize we're all to blame. There's no blame. It starts with us. Yeah, and for me personally, the script was massaged that way because that's what happened to me. I wasn't to blame until there was that awakening moment where I started seeing this thing I hadn't seen all my life mm. because I hadn't looked for it. I was mm. told it was, it was something that we all use and it become invisible to me. Yet you're a surfer, you've been surfing oceans. I surf, I dive, I grew up on the oceans, I could swim before I could walk. But um, never fully noticed? I'd never noticed plastic in the environment and that's because it was something I used every day and it become part of my life as much as the grass and the trees and, and you know, the dog and everything else within my life. That was part of the, well, there's a, 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 you know, a jigsaw puzzle yes. that made the picture. So this leads me to the next question. When was your eureka moment? When you, if you reflect backwards, mm. when was the moment when it hit you? You became aware and let's just focus on plastic for yeah. now. Yeah, okay. Well, with plastic, it was... So Joe Ruxin, the producer, called me and said, have you noticed plastic when you're swimming and have you seen all this? And I said, no, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm in the ocean all the time. And she said, look, I think there's a problem. I'm going on an expedition to the North Pacific Gyre because there's supposedly this floating island plastic as big as Texas and we're going to do a scientific study on it. So this is what we're being told is happening. So can you have a look when you're surfing and filming and in the ocean? So from that moment... Do I remember made, where you were? Yeah, I was at Dylan One, actually, oh, in Hong Kong. On and the beach? Be, on the beach because I went surfing. and. As I walk down the beach, I'm thinking, all right, I'm gonna look for plastic. As I walk down the beach, I suddenly looked along the beach and all of these bright colors started, like stars started pinging off the beach. And I thought, wow. I walked down on the wind line, and I, I started picking it up and looking at it. I'm like, that's not sand, it's not a rock. That, that's a tiny piece of plastic. And How I, poignant. So you were on the beach when you got that phone call. No, 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 this was, so, this was the, next, the next day when I went surfing. The next day, wow, <laughs> yeah. okay. Um, <clears throat> and as I paddled out, I saw these things that looked like jellyfish but weren't jellyfish and I picked them out and they were plastic bags. And I remember sitting on my board and I'm waiting for a wave to come and I looked down at my feet and the water was clear enough for Dylan White at that point to see my feet and this plastic bag just seductively wrapped itself around my foot and I had to kind of kick it off and I picked it up and I looked at it and I went, holy moly. We, I, why didn't I see this before? Is this something that's just become worse? So it wasn't a problem before, or have I just recognized it? Yes. So when Joe came back after a month uh, on the expedition, by that stage, I'd gone into, in deep into research and, and looked, tried to find science on it and realized that there wasn't a lot written about it that I could draw from. No one could tell me if plastic had reached Antarctic waters. No one could tell me if plastic was affecting fish in the South Pacific, which you know we we're told is this beautiful uh, location with um, gin clear water and fantastic coral reefs. 
nobody could tell me what effect plastic would have to other marine life. Are they eating it? If so, what happens to it? What happens to seabirds that eat the fish? And by this stage, I'm starting to work out the food chain. And then it dawned on me that we're at the top of the food chain. Yeah. So what happens when these toxins get to us? Are we able as humans to get rid of these toxins or do they just build up? So it started this chain of events and this awakening yes. that you've been talking about, which once it happens to you, you can't go back. And Jo came back with these statistics that were frightening. She said, look, there, there is no floating garbage island as big as Texas, as we've been told and we read about. She said, it's actually worse than that. She said, the, the water is gin clear. You occasionally see a floating water, a plastic bottle or plastic bag. She said, but when we put these manta trawls with these fine mesh nets behind them, and tow them for an hour and we bring them up, she said there's this glutinous mass of microplastics. And when she sent me the footage and the photographs, I couldn't believe it because then I suddenly realized that this is affecting everything that we rely on for survival. The oceans, yes. marine life, our food source. And we then had a discussion about, well, what do we do about it? What, what does it mean if it's that bad in the North Pacific gyre? What's it like in the other four gyres that drive everything we rely on you know, for our survival on the, on the planet? And no one could tell us. So um, the idea was to go and find out, do an investigation. And Joe spent two years and, and Sonia raising the money to do that. These things cost money. And if we're going to do it properly, we needed big pieces of equipment, boats. We needed submarines. We needed to be able to go to every location on the planet, whether it was below the surface, above the surface, into laboratories, on mountains, to determine the extent of this problem. Because it was only once we realized how bad the problem is and the extent to which it's affecting people can we quantify um, the nature of it and then look at solutions or what needs to be done to overcome it. And so that's why over four years we went to 20 locations around the world and as I said, you know, we took submarines to the bottom of the ocean, we, we, we looked at the surface of the ocean, we looked in, in, in the food that we were eating and slowly by slowly we joined the dots. And the film was a culmination of all of those dots mm. coming together mm. so that we had an overall picture that we could present to people to say, we have an issue. Right? I didn't know there was an issue before I started the film. If you're not in touch with the ocean like I am, you probably have no idea there's an issue. If you live on a mountain in the Sierra, you, don't, you definitely probably don't know there's an issue. So here's what we've found. What do you think about that? And so the is film there is that. anything that you wish you'd put in the film that you haven't put? Yeah, there is. I'm, you know, once again, it was all about funding and about timing. And yeah. um, when we, we filmed, the solutions segment and edited it, there were only so many solutions at that stage that were being explored. Um, and once we'd finished picture lock on the film, the solutions, of course, and, and the story keeps rolling, um, and many more solutions and ingenious ideas um, were, were, were coming out. So there were good solutions and bad solutions. There were solutions that worked, some that didn't, such as you mentioned Boy and Slat, the, mm. the young European boy. Most scientists believe he's his device won't work, yes. um, and that's because of fundamentals such as, you know, it won't survive big ocean storms, 
it's only solving a small part of the pollution problem. As we know, 70% of plastic sinks, so it's only tackling the surface mm. area. It will harm marine animals that are caught in that plastic yeah. or living on it. So there's, there's reasons why they don't think that works, but he's thinking about it. Of course. He's 20 years old. Yeah. He came up with a solution. They he can raised afford money. to fail for five years. And but then, you know, wonderful yeah. that someone Isn't it? is out there trying to solve this issue. Yeah. And people, scientists are now saying, well, this is what we can learn from what he's doing, as he will, because he's yes. got funding now where he can moderate that and hopefully overcome those yes. problems and build that. But there's one person who's doing something about it. And it can be as simple as not using one of these yeah. as an individual, yeah. just deciding and having that awakening. Well, I don't use straws at home, yeah. so why would I use one when I go to a bar or a restaurant? Yes. Do I need it? Of course yes. I don't. Yes. So why am I contributing to the 500 million straws that go into the rubbish bin every yes. day, yes. which is causing a massive problem? We're pulling these things out of the noses of turtles. Yes. We're pulling them out of the stomachs of seabirds. Um, that one, of course, be, exactly. Yeah, which eventually... Just pass me that bag there. I'll show you what I carry. Um, I've been carrying this set of bamboo cutlery. Right. I have the set as well. Since forever. And it's just brilliant. <coughs> and this includes... Mm -hmm. A bamboo straw. straw. Yeah. And this goes with me everywhere. And it's amazing. You know, you go to festivals. You go, oh yep. my God, I didn't bring my own cutlery. And it just comes in handy, and it's, and it's as simple, simple as that. Yeah. And this boils down to, I think you concur with me, is what can we do today mm. in March 2017? And that is to boycott single-use plastic. Yes, Right. absolutely. So everything MANA does now, we have this little icon here, mm. and it's in English and Chinese, and it says boycott single-use plastic. So yes. everything we publish now, everything we print, that is our message. Yeah. Because that's something you and I can do today. Absolutely. Right? And today. We, and and single-use plastic is the problem. That's the stuff that's causing the damage. Yes. And as you say, the best way to fix the problem is to stop using it, stop demanding it, stop the production of it. And of course, that's I not have always a set, convenient, I've got two sets right? Like it's not always convenient. It's you want to grab a coffee, uh, you know, you're rushing, uh, there's Starbucks, you go, you forget to tell them and they put a plastic lid on top of your coffee and then you're yep. like well what to do and you know so what do you do well you create a new convenience you know I mean I travel everywhere with with a steel container I take it in and I get coffee from right. that I mean I'm using this now yeah bamboo these are great and bamboo yeah. has natural anti antibacterial properties yeah. so it's it's a good way to keep water fresh um, you know we're using these cups today to make a point because most people think that coffee cups made of paper that they get from a, a big chain coffee maker is a way of not using plastic. But what they don't realize is that most paper cups have 27% plastic yes. as a liner inside them yes. to stop the paper going soggy. And no one's going to recycle that. You can't recycle that because if you put it into the paper bin, you're contaminating the paper recycling company's um, ability to recycle the paper because it's got plastic in it. If you put it into the plastics bin, you're contaminating the plastic with the paper. So you're actually upsetting yes. that process, yes. even if you're trying to do the right thing. Yes. So the difficulty today is people say to me, what is the right thing? You know, what do I do? Well, as you said, cut out your, your single-use plastic, find alternatives. This is a perfect example. Yes. Steel container, carry it with you. Yes. Take it up, get your coffee, put, yes. put in that container. Yes. Keep it with you, then you've got this wonderful 
you know, receptacle that you can use and only you use everywhere yeah. you go. Absolutely. Um, so there are ways. Now, <clears throat> the film uh, has received uh, fantastic recognition uh, for the message. We have had some criticism, and it's, it's been from one organisation, which is a zero-waste organisation. And they say that we're not uh, showing the solution of zero waste. We, we, we have to get society to a stage where there, where there is no waste. Mm. We shouldn't be producing this. Mm. Now, whilst I agree with that, that's exactly where we need to go, there has to be a transition period. If you're realistic, we have to get people to understand, first of all, the problem. And that's, that's the whole point of the film. This is a problem and this is why. And that's actually what the film's about. It's not about the solutions, although they're in there. It's about the issue. So there's an awareness. Once we have that awareness and people understand through seeing the film and talking to, to people like yourself and coming to establishments like this, then we can start the transition and the thought process where we change people's habits. We can start them by educating them on the different kinds of plant-based plastics, for example. The ones that are good plant-based plastics and the ones that are bad because not all plant-based plastics are actually uh, are better than the hydrocarbon-based plastics because some of them won't degrade or compost uh, in landfill because they need oxygen and UVs. Some will. They've got uh, ability for microbes to break them down. So we need to move and understand what these uh, products are. I, I couldn't help when I was watching Plastic Ocean is, I wish you'd come to Mana and asked us, do you guys have anything mm. that's not plastic? And we would have said, well, we don't have anything that is plastic. Right. That would be a wonderful moment to have you know, an F&B establishment that is, that is the solution, that is yeah. practicing a solution. Well, that sequence was in the film because we wanted to show that, we wanted to show manufacturers and retailers that even as a consumer, there's very little choice. Yes. And what we did in Austin, because the irony that Austin is in the middle of, of a state in the US that produced, that has, is home to the biggest petrochemical plants and yes. produces the most oil. And so within that is this oasis of green environmentalism, which is Austin. And people there are very environmentally aware, but even there, they don't have a choice when they go to a takeaway or a restaurant yeah. place to, to have food put into a product, into a takeaway product that isn't hydrocarbon based or is an alternative mm. to the plastic that we're, we're given to wrap our food in and eat yes. it with. Yes. Surprising. It is, but that's yeah. all changing. And, is, yeah. and you know, uh, businesses such as yours are leading the way and showing people, and that's what it becomes, is um, a, showing other people, first of all, that you can make the change. Secondly, that as a businessman, you can monetize that. So as, every, as, as this awareness happens and this awakening happens, consumer desire shifts and people want different products and they want to move towards uh, more sustainable products, um, then they start coming to businesses that provide that. Mm -hmm. That provides income. People yes. are able to employ more staff. They're able to perpetuate the products that they're selling. And business, other businesses suddenly turn around and go, well, my business is losing. This business is growing. What do I need to do? I need to become more sustainable. I need to start introducing products that are recyclable uh, or zero waste. And now we're seeing this fantastic um, culture growing up around the world in Australia and the US where you can go to supermarkets 
where there's no packaging. You go in and everything's in bins and you take your own containers, yeah. take it home, and you can live a zero waste life a lot easier than you could five years ago. It's coming. It's it coming is. to a supermarket near you. Absolutely. So there is hope. There is hope. And on that note, Craig, it's been a pleasure having you for breakfast. Thank you. It's really inspiring. It's been awesome to, to hear your philosophies. And, we've, you know, we've had discussions in the past and you've got an, an amazing view on, on the world and the universe. So thank you very much. I must thank you for iShot Hong Kong. Remember back That's in 2008, right. you That's called right. me up and encouraged me to submit Save the Human, Don't Eat yes. the Planet. Which one? We submitted it and we won Best Documentary. Yeah. And um, that... That's kind of snowballed, that little, what was a six, six and a half minute snippet we did for YouTube. You that's know, we had right. no intention of, but that's gone all over the world. And I've had schools in New Zealand, in South Africa, called me up saying, can we show it to our students? It's and fantastic. It's collected thousands and thousands of views. And, and it I remember, was 11 years ago. That was 2008. 2008, yeah, right. And nine years 2008, ago. 2008, and I think we got the award 2009 that's when you right. did the... Um, mm. Don't eat the planets. You know that, that was the mm. sub, and uh, it's amazing how far we've come just in those you know mm. nine, ten years since. And the power of film, and the power of film. And you've been ahead of the curve on that one for quite some time. Thank you. So I thank you, and um, pleasure having breakfast. With you. Lovely to be here. Thank you.